20 through 33. You can follow along on the screen. It should be up there. Um, <clears throat> okay, verse, starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the body, the church, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn and, uh, and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Lord God, how great thou art. Lord, that's, we can't sing that enough. You are truly worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And Lord, we thank you that as we sang, you have opened our eyes to this reality. You've, you've made us aware of the glory that hangs in the world, the glory that we see in relationship to you, the glory that we find in Jesus Christ redeeming us from our sins. What a glorious thing. And so many people are missing out on it. They just don't catch it. They don't see it. They can't be aware of it because sin has closed their eyes. Lord, would you open more eyes, open more people to this glorious reality, to the joy that we can find in knowing Jesus Christ and have mercy on many, we pray. Lord, I want to thank you for... Um, the, the stories that we have in our church of, of health and healing. Lord, again, we're glad to have our brother Steve with us this morning, and, and uh, we pray that you'd continue to be with him as he recovers from the surgery and all that he's faced. Uh, thank you again for Jen's steadfast love to stand beside him and, and to, uh, to lead and to take up the reins when he was incapacitated and ready to, to do whatever needed to be done. But Lord, we're grateful. We're so ultimately grateful that you have miraculously, just over and above what we could have asked or prayed, healed and restored him in such a short time. So thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you would continue that healing and that restoration process. And we're glad that we get to keep our brother with us. Uh, thank you for, for that mercy to him and to this church too. And Father, we want to pray this morning for uh, Kyle, uh, who usually leads us in worship, Lord, as he's gone through a, a procedure uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, he's recovering well, he's, he's home and he's doing well, but Lord, would you continue to uh, help him to recover? We pray that the procedure would have its intended purpose, that it might bring healing and health to him. 
And uh, Lord, I just pray that we as a body would be ready to, to help in whatever way he needs us to. So have mercy. And uh, Father, I want to pray for my brother Rich, who was supposed to read scripture this morning. Uh, but in your wisdom and your mercy and your kindness, you gave him laryngitis. And we don't know why, but um, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, be restoring and healing him, that uh, he is able, uh, he and Bev would be able to worship at home from Zoom with us this morning, and that they would find you delightful, even though they can't be with us today. And uh, finally, Lord, I just want to praise you and thank you for uh, the story from the Nichols that Lauren is pregnant and that you are bringing um, another Nichols in the world. That's, that's a wonderful thing. More of those people. And uh, so, Lord, would you be with uh, her through that whole pregnancy? And we look forward to the day when we welcome their new baby. And, uh, and so we ask your blessing on that family and, and their growth. And, Lord, now as we turn to your word, we ask that you would, Holy Spirit, continue to open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, help us to see and understand what your word has for us this morning and to apply it and to believe it and to trust the promises of it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So what we've been doing is we've been in 1 Corinthians and we're doing this series since you asked because there's just a number of topics that comes up in 1 Corinthians. It hits a bunch of different questions. And so last week when we were in chapter 7, we began chapter 7, there was a detailed discussion, a lot of talk about marriage. And should Christians be married? What happens if a Christian marries and is married to a non-Christian who doesn't believe and doesn't want to be married to them? And all of those kinds of things. We also had a pretty good discussion, I think, about singleness in the middle of that. Um, that, that, that is a, a gift. It is a wonderful thing. And it is, it's a struggle for some people. So uh, what we're going to do this week is we're going to pause 1 Corinthians 7 and we're going to look at the issue of marriage. Uh, what, is a, what is a Christian marriage? What do Christians believe about marriage? And so uh, it's a bit topical. We'll hit a couple of different scriptures, but it's kind of rooted in Ephesians 5. That's why we read that to begin with. And what struck me this week is I was surprised at exactly how timely this message is, how important it was that this come up. Uh, one of the things I saw on Twitter earlier in the week was uh, New York Magazine had a cover story. And the name of the cover story, the title was Polyamory, a Practical Guide for Curious Couples. And that, that wasn't it. That wasn't the only thing that happened last week. There was another one. The New York Times had an article, How a Polyamorous Mom Had a Big Adventure and Found Herself. And then the New York Post said, Is your right relationship ready for polyamory? Six signs that point to yes. This was all in the space of a week. I don't know what's going on in New York, but <laughs> the, this idea of polyamory is basically open relationships that yes, I, I love my wife, but I'm going to see other people. I'm going to be with other people, and, and my wife is going to be with other people, and we're okay with that. And so I was like, wow, do we need a clarifying message on what marriage is and what it means and why that might not be such a great idea to do those things? Um, and um, so the, the opening line of the New York uh, Magazine article said, if you live in New York, it's very possible you've recently found yourself chatting with a coworker or listening to the table next to you at a restaurant and heard some variation of, they just opened up and they're so much happier. So wouldn't your marriage just be happier if it was more open? That, that's kind of how the thing began, the promise. Now, this did not escape the attention of more than just Twitter. Um, they talked about it on The View. Full disclosure, I don't watch The View. I don't like The View. I am unaware of anything they say on The View, except this one, post, they posted this clip on Twitter. So I heard it. But 
What was surprising was um, uh, Whoopi Goldberg had introduced this topic of polyamory and mentioned the New York uh, Magazine article and then was making faces through the whole thing. And when they panned around and looked at other panelists, they were making faces. And basically, nobody liked the idea. They were all very skeptical of it, which I, surprised me because they're, they're pretty open and liberal and stuff. Um, I don't know who this person is, but her name is Alyssa Farah Griffin. She's one of the panelists. She said, it's my belief that there is no way that one of the partners in a polyamorous relationship isn't jealous that the other one is sleeping with somebody else. They're just pretending. I think she's onto something. There's, there is no safe openness there. There's always going to be jealousy. There's something going on. Why is that? Well, last week when we talked about marriage and the sexual urge in humanity, that is so deeply rooted in us that you can't play it, take it out and play with it. You can't treat it as a toy. And so when you talk about these, these open relationships or other versions of marriage or something like that, we're, we're toying with something that's foundational. And so this morning what I want to look at is I want to look at marriage from a biblical perspective and say, what does the scripture tell us marriage is supposed to be? So to do that, I'm going to ask three questions. Why marriage? What is it? And why, when does it end? Those, those are going to be the three headings that we'll go through. Um, now, last week we did talk about singleness. And so I'm not dismissing singleness. I'm not elevating marriage to be above singleness. I'm just going to focus on marriage this morning, okay? So that's, we're not ignoring that part. We're just moving someplace a little different. So why marriage? Why did God create it that there would be marriage in the world between human beings? Well, I think the first reason, any time you ask a theological question, the best place to begin is with God. You start with God, not with humanity, not with opinion. So when we ask the question, why marriage, we have to start with God. Well, God is triune. And in case you didn't know that, this is Trinity Community Church. We believe in the Trinity. God is three equally divine persons and yet one God. So each person is a separate person. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They're different persons, and yet they are one God. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know how that works. It's a glorious mystery, but it's what the scriptures teach us. So God, before creation ever existed, before he made one Adam, was in relationship. And it's what's called an ad extra. It's with the other. The father was always in relationship with the son. The son was always in relationship with the spirit. The spirit was always in relationship with the father. So part of being Trinity is relationship. And it's not dependent on creation. It's not dependent on there existing in universe. It is in the nature, the fundamental nature of who God is. God is community. God is relationship. God is relational. So that's where we start. And so if that's true of God and then he creates a universe, then why did he create man and woman to be in, in marriage? Well, Genesis 1 starts at the beginning. It doesn't leave us wondering about this very long. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So there is something about man that is in the image of God, and part of that is relationship. That's part of what it means. And so verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is not just man who is in the image of God. It is the togetherness, the man and womanness of humanity that puts them together. So, well, wait a minute now. God created a bunch of animals, didn't he? And animals are male and female. So why are they not in marriage? Why are they not in the image of God? Well, 
when God created the animals, he just said, let there be, and poof, here are a bunch of animals. He didn't discuss with himself this relationship issue. He didn't say, let us make them in our image. He just made them, and there they are. They don't have that same closeness, that same proximity to God that we do. We're in his image, and so our maleness and our femaleness uh, means something different than what it does in the animals. So in, in a lot of the sexuality debates today, you'll see people point to the animals. Well, animals do this, and animals do that. And it's like, yeah, animals eat their young. I'm not going to do that. There's something different about humanity. We are an animal, but we're a different animal. We're a unique animal. And so when we look to this and we say, well, look, he created animals. Yes, he did, but he did it very differently. It's something very unique. So there's something about humanity, our, our sameness but differentness in male and female, that, that is an expression of God's triune nature, of his relationship. Um, so our first why marriage answer is that it has something to do with, it has, it has something that the animals and that the angels don't have. Angels are not given in marriage. Animals are not given in marriage. There's something unique about humanity that exists in the status of a marriage. They're, they're, that's part of who we are is, is in a marriage. So why is that? Why would that be that it would be like that, that we wouldn't be like the angels or the animals? Well, because God did it that way. He's the author and he gets to do that. But also because God said it is like that. So he did it and he said it and that's the way it is. Um, we don't have to like it or understand it or, or reach for it. It's just the way it is. We have been created as this duality, male and female. Same but opposite, same but different. So why else did God create marriage? What else was he going to do? Well, it says in, at the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So in the beginning God creates the world. But it wasn't done. He didn't finish. What he does is the next six days he orders. He separates darkness from light, land from sea, air from ground. He, he orders it, and then he starts filling it, and he puts things into it. And after each one of those days, he makes a separation. He says, this is good, this is good, this is good. But when we get to the sixth day, that's the only place where he says, this is not good. Because what happens is in Genesis 2, it says that he finished all the work, and then he made man. And when he looked at man, he said, it is not good that man is alone. So it's not done yet. It's not there yet. And so what he says in, in Genesis 2, he says, the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But for Adam, there was found no helper fit to him. So God not only was aware of the issue, it's not good for man to be alone. He highlighted the issue. He brought Adam's attention to it. Look, dude, it ain't right. It's not supposed to be like this. So you can see Adam sitting there going, um, aardvark, wait, there's two of those. Um, okay, cheetah, wait, oh, how come there's two of those? Um, uh, dog, okay, well, there's two of those. How come there's only one of me? He made it personal for Adam. And see, what happened is, what God had said when he created Adam, uh, Adam and Eve, is he, he said back to Genesis 1, he blessed them and he said, let the, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is the problem, is God created humanity and he said, I've got a task for you. 
I want you to have dominion. I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply, and I want you to have dominion over this earth. So when Adam is watching all these animals walk by and he's naming them, he's going, uh, this isn't for me. That's not for me. So that's when God puts him into a deep sleep. I, you know, my theory is this name of the animals thing didn't happen in like 10 minutes. He was probably up all day. He was probably exhausted to begin with, and God said, okay, well, fall asleep. And so he's out. That's what I, I, I think he came up with a deep sleep. And God pulls a rib out of him and fashions a woman. Now, why a rib? There's a lot of theories. There's a great poem. Um, I think it was attributed to Matthew Henry about that the rib was because, you know, she wasn't made from his head. She's not supposed to rule over him. She wasn't made from his foot because she's not supposed to, he's not supposed to, you know, rule over her, but from the rib because it's close and personal and it's intimate. And it's really beautiful. It's not what the scripture says. Why a rib? I don't know. It's just the part that he took. He could have taken anything. And then when Adam wakes up and he sees Eve, he goes, ah, this is it. This is the one that was missing. So his last thought was naming all the animals. His waking thought was, I found one for me. Now together, Adam and Eve can fulfill the creation mandate. Adam couldn't do it alone. He could not be fruitful and multiply alone. He needed a, a helper that was fit to him, one that would match with him so that they could fill the earth and, and have dominion over it. You see, what happens is when God saw that, when he had Adam and Eve done, and it was all finished, then he said, it's very good. He did not say it's perfect. And perfect, by the way, means complete, full, done. He rested from his labors. He's not creating anymore, but he's now given the task to humanity. I want you to further continue to do what I started. I want you to order the earth. I want you to get things organized. Because how does the Bible begin? It begins in a garden. Where does it end? In a glorious city. We're not going back to Eden. We're going forward because we have been given this mandate to, to have dominion over the earth. So what God did, the other reason that, that we have marriage is because he's given us a job and we can only do it together. We can only work together to accomplish this. It's, it's not something that um, a man can do alone. But... And this, I, I said I wasn't going to touch on singleness. I want to touch on singleness real quick. Adam was not useless when he was alone, was he? He didn't just sit in the garden and twiddle his thumbs and go, I can't do anything. God gave him a task to go out and name the animals. And so he did, and he did that before Eve existed. So singleness fits into this equation too. It, it is, singleness can accomplish God's great purposes, but to do what all of what humanity has, we have to have marriage too. We have to have man and woman together. And so that's how we get that place is, is he has created a helper for Adam, someone who's fit to him. And actually the Hebrew is not just fit, but opposite of and opposite of the face. So it's like looking in a mirror and saying, this is me, but it's not me. So that's, that's part of that Trinity equation. And that's also part of, of the, um, the creation mandate is together we will be able to do this. Together we will again, we will continue to finish God's creative work in ordering and structuring the world. And, and I'm, all right, NASA nerd here. We may even get to do that on other planets. That's pretty wild. That was not idea, that wasn't in the Bible at all. Nobody had that idea, but we could theoretically go to Mars and, and do the same thing there, have dominion over that. And I find that kind of exciting. We're going to be going back to the moon. We'll have a moon base. And that's pretty exciting. We'll have dominion over the moon. So it, it's much bigger than we thought it was. So um, this is what it's like for humanity to be created in God's images. First of all, we represent that, that community of him. And second of all, we continue his creative work on the earth. 
ordering, structuring, getting things ready. So um, at the end, it wasn't perfect, it wasn't complete, but it was very good. And, and so that's nice to know. It, w it, was, it was not done yet, but it was very good. Um, so that, that's just two reasons. I could probably pick out some more, but I just want to keep it short. Two reasons why marriage is because God said so and because he made it that way so that he could continue his creative work through us on this world, ordering and structuring. So then what is marriage? If we just throw the word out, we don't define it, what is it? Well, on June 26, 2015, in the case of Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court held a five to four decision that same-sex couples could have the constitutional right to marriage and, um, and that it was to be legal and recognized in every state. So they, they had decided what marriage was. They made a proclamation. Um, when the majority, when they wrote and they reviewed why did they say that homosexuals have a right to marriage, is they said, well, if you look at the history of marriage within our country, it has changed. And this is just part of that. So for example, there's a, a, a law called coverture. And what that meant was when a man and woman married, the woman was the property of the man. She couldn't own anything on herself. She couldn't do any uh, uh, transactions, anything like that. She was under her husband. And so they said the two become one flesh by the woman becoming man's property. Now, if you think that's archaic and old and ancient, it is. But it wasn't until, I think, 1975 that a woman could get a credit card in her own name. So it's not that out of date. So that was Couture. And they said, well, that ended. That, that came to a completion. Um, that was abandoned when women began to get legal rights and political rights and, and property rights. That, that went away. There was a change, right? The other example is 1967, Loving versus Virginia. Uh, what had happened was this couple, a, a white man married a black woman in Virginia. Well, Virginia had laws on the books that said, it was racial integrity laws, and said you can't do that. A white man can't, a white person can't marry a person of color. And so they were sentenced to a year in prison. Well, they appealed, and it went to the Supreme Court. And when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court struck it down, and here's, here's the last part of their ruling. They said, marriage is one of the basic civil rights of man, fundamental to our very existence and survival. To deny this fundamental right on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes is surely to deprive the state citizens of liberty without due process of law. And so marriage changed. It went from this racially based thing to, um, to uh, something that was just open to everybody. So with Obergefell, what the majority wrote is they said indeed, changed understandings of marriage are characteristic of a nation where new dimensions of freedom become apparent to new generations. So their decision said, you can't restrict marriage to between a man and a, and a woman. So that was the ruling. Um, Judge Stevens was a, the, the chief justice at the time, and he wrote a dissension. He did not agree. And one of the questions he said is, is what limits it to only two? You, in your decision, you said any two people can marry. Why two? Can it be six? So we're back to the polyamorous thing, right? The problem here is they threw out any kind of external definition of what marriage is. Marriage is what we decide it is, is what we think it, it should be. And so our, technically speaking, our nation has the right to do that. Marriage is not defined in our Constitution. They, 
They're free to do, decide whatever it is. But for Christians, we can't go there. We have to say, what is marriage? What is it made of? What does it look like? And, and then define it according to God's standard, not according to whatever we think is right or wrong, not, ever, not what we'd like. We have to define it by what God says. And so uh, one of the questions when, when this was all a hot topic and you'd say something about marriages between a man and a woman, they'd say, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Yeah, he kind of did. In, in Matthew 19, they come to him and they ask him about uh, divorce. And can a man just write a certificate of divorce to his wife and be done with it? And he answered, have you not read that he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So our Lord has defined, and he's agreeing with the creation account, with history, that there is a definition to marriage. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Not to his husband, not to her wife, not to those things. This is clearly what the Bible defines, not to six different people. It is built this way, and, and again, I th you have to go back to the idea that it's rooted in creation. It's rooted in the nature of how we are built. So if our culture wanted to allow homosexuals to be together in legal status, they could have gone with civil uh, unions. And that would have been okay. That's their right to do. I don't agree with it. I would vote against it. But I mean, that, that they could do that. What they did was they redefined marriage. And they did it boldly. They were like, this is a good thing. Haven't they re redefined marriage before? Doesn't, that, uh, doesn't the Bible uh, support the couture, the law that a woman is property of a man? And we changed that, didn't we? Well, yeah, kind of, no, not really. <laughs> Just cut to the chase. The Bible does talk about property passing to the male. It's held in the, in the father's name, and it passes to the oldest son. And it, it says you can't, women can't own these, these properties. They have to go to the male. And it was because of the laws of inheritance, is God had divided up the land. He said, this tribes get these chunks, and we want to keep it that way. Therefore, it passes from the father to the son. It stays there. A woman may marry outside her tribe, and then that, that land would then move. And so that didn't work. But it wasn't ironclad that a woman could never hold property. There's always exemptions, right? Numbers 26. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the name of his daughters were, of Zevelohad were Mahalael, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they go to Moses and they went, it's not right. Our father is going to be eliminated because he didn't have any sons. And so Moses, instead of going, well, I feel like it'll be okay, he went to the Lord. And the Lord said, yeah, let them inherit. So they got to inherit. There's always an exemption from this. It's not an ironclad thing that Couture would only would forbid a woman from possessing anything. And then when you take that and you bring it into the new covenant, it doesn't survive. And, and the big example I could think of was Lydia from uh, Acts 16. She is a trader in purple. Now to us, it's like, yeah, big deal. I got you know purple sweaters, it's uh, no big deal. In those days, in the first century, to make purple, you, you didn't have a, a batch of chemicals you mixed together to come up with it. You had to find natural things that would dye something purple. That's why it's a royal color, is because it's so hard to make. There was a specific sea urchin that grew in a specific part of the Mediterranean that was really hard to find. That's how you got it. So when, when it says that Lydia was a trader in purple, she was 
rich. That was a huge trade. That was big business. And not only was she a trader in purple, but when she hears and believes and is baptized, it's her and her household. And so she has got not just a, a business, she's got a household. And, they, and Paul didn't say, okay, you've been baptized now, you have to turn this all over to your husband. It's all gone. Or you don't have a husband? Okay, well, you've got to turn it over to the church. Nothing. Silent. Crickets. She was allowed to continue to do that. So that idea that, that, uh, that Crotier law is going to continue on, it just vanishes when it comes to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, and this is the bad news part, um, when, um, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira sold their property, they were treated as individuals. Ananias comes in, uh, Peter questions him, did you do this? Yes, I did. Bam, he's dead. And then his wife comes in and she's treated as an equal. You knew about this, didn't you? Um, yeah, boom, she's dead. So they're treated in, in separate ways. Um, that, again, is unlike what happened in the Old Testament. And the, the big example I think of is Achan. When Israel comes into the Promised Land and they capture the city of Ai, they're told everything gets destroyed. Nothing comes out of that city. Destroy everything. Well, Achan went, yeah, but this is nice. And, and it's pretty, and I'll just go hide it in my tent. It was him and his whole family who were executed for that. Sounds harsh. But they were judged as a unit. But when we get to the New Testament, they're judged as individuals. They're not taken together. So what about this idea of loving versus Virginia, interracial marriage? I mean, the Bible teaches that, doesn't it? Doesn't it say you shouldn't marry with other races? Um, there's a couple of places. Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. You have to maintain integrity of Israel. You can't marry outside. And then when they do it anyway and they go into exile, when they return, Ezra says, they had taken the sons of daughters to be their wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy race was mixed, had mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in their faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men was foremost. And so Ezra and Nehemiah have a big deal where they're separating out. You married foreign women and you're out. So doesn't the Bible teach that we shouldn't mix the races, doesn't it? Again, it, it doesn't survive into the New Covenant. It doesn't make it into the New Testament. We just heard that last week. This, this person becomes a believer. Their spouse is not. And Paul's command is not, thou must put them away. He says, hey, if they want to stay, that's great. They're, they're made holy by you, and, and you could be a blessing to them, and they can come to know you. So that strict isolation like that, that, that racial isolation, it was part of the old covenant. It didn't survive into the new. So when you look at these ways that they look back and they change the laws on marriage, what they actually did was make it more aligned with scripture. They had a distorted view of what scripture taught, an incomplete view. And so when, they, when you step back and you go, well, can women own property? Well, yeah. Look at Lydia. Rather than no, because that's what the Bible said. It's, it's, it's an incomplete view. So yes, it did change. Things did change. And they changed in this case for the better. They moved more in line with what the scripture says on this. So back to Obergefell. What about that? Once again, they redefined marriage, but did they move it closer to what God had said? They didn't. They moved it away because God said, Jesus himself said, God created a male and female and said, they are one flesh. He defined what marriage was. So they started on this good trajectory and then just overshot their target and wound up with, with homosexual marriage. 
So that, that's the, the danger of this is it's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to go that far. Um, when it comes to marriage, though, we ask, what is marriage? Well, it is a union between a male and a female. It's not strictly consensual. It is something that is, goes beyond that. It, it is what Paul calls in Ephesians 5, what we read this morning, a great mystery. It is a, a mega mysterion. That, that sounds like anime to me, but um, I mean, it's a mega mysterion. It's a huge mystery. And he says, I'm not talking just about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and his church. There's something that's, that's reflected not just in the Trinity in marriage. There's something about Jesus and his church there. And so that's why it says that, um, that the husband has to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Because what we're engaged in when we marry, what we're doing is we are picturing physically, tangibly, Jesus and the church. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He laid down his life for her. When, when she was at her worst, right, he his, his tells his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, and they all flee when the, when the crowd shows up. They have abandoned him. And he dies for them. And what's the words on his lips when he does it? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not just those who are crucifying him, but even his followers. He's praying for them. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife like that. Give up your rights, your entitlements, what you think you're owed, and love your wife that way. That's, that's hard to do. That is really hard to do. We're built to think of ourselves and to think of my wife in, in such a loving way. And so if you have that kind of a husband, is it hard then when it says, wives, submit to your husbands? He's willing to die for you. He's willing to lay down his life for you. He will do whatever it takes to make you holy and perfect and pure and beautiful and right. And he will love you to the end. And can you submit to that? Amen. By the way, you already are submitting to that male and female, because Christ, the church submits to Christ. So it's already happening. So he's just calling us now to express that in marriage. I'm doing some premarital counseling, and um, we're reading the book, um, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And he goes through that, that Ephesians 5 thing, and he talks through that, and he says, you know, marriage is not just two people saying, yes, I will I'll be with you because I like you. Um, I find you compatible with me. I find you attractive. Uh, therefore, I will uh, commit to you until you're not. Because what happens is he said, he quoted, he quoted the theologian Stanley Harawas, and Harawas said, you never marry the right person. So to all my married friends in the room, you married the wrong person. I'm sorry. It, it's just, you, you did. Why? Because the person you married is not the person you're married to today. In the act of marrying, that person has changed. You've changed. As you grow together, as you grow in Christ together, now both of you are changed again. And so the person that, that Lisa married when I was 25 will not be the person that she's married to when I'm 75. We have changed. And so don't look for that perfect person. It'll never happen. You'll never find them. And if you do find them and you marry them, they won't remain perfect and you wind up in a divorce. So that's the call is us to work together, to strive together, to grow in grace, to grow in holiness together. That, that's the blessing. That's why a believer married to a non-believer could be a blessing to that non-believer. They're made holy by that union. They are in a position of great evangelism that they could hear the gospel and they could believe in a greater opportunity than just meeting a stranger on the street. So that's what marriage is. That's, that's what's going on is it's this picture of Christ and his church. It's that love. So here's the question then. When does it end? 
And I'm being very clever here. I want, I'm so clever that I have to explain it to you. <laughs> I'm not that clever. I'm using end in both mean, meanings of the word. End being the termination, what does marriage terminate, but also what is the end, what is the purpose, the telos, the, the final goal of marriage. So when does it end? Well, when does it end? Well, obviously at death, when one of the partners or both of them die. And I get that from Romans 7. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she is called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if she, her husband dies, she is free by, from the law, and she can marry any other man is not an adulteress. So marriage lasts until one of the partners passes away. That, that's, that's fine. And then the widow or the widower is free to remarry, is free to remain single. It's, it's open to equation. You're not bound just because of death. Then what we, we didn't look at last week, I kind of glazed over it, was infidelity. Oh, no, no, oh, that's desertion. Infidelity. Um, that's the one that we always think of in the classic question of can a, a, a person be legally divorced? And it comes from Matthew 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's Jesus himself. So there is a case where divorce is permissible, and that's if there is infidelity. Um, it's not required. So it's not like, oh, you slept with so-and-so? Well, I love you and I want to keep you, but that marriage is over. Bye. It is grounds for divorce. It could be that the, the relationship is so damaged, it's so, so broken, it can't continue. Or the relationship could be restored, hopefully, by you know, prayer and a lot of prayer and more prayer. Hopefully we could restore the marriage, but I mean, it, it's not the ends of it. And, and one thing that we have to remember is we tend to think, well, God hates divorce. That's from Malachi. It's a really hard verse to translate. And, and we need to take care with it because actually God did divorce. Uh, Jeremiah 3.8 says, she saw that for all the adulteries of her face of that faithless one Israel I sent her away with a decree of divorce. So God has divorced Israel in a sense. Um, so there was infidelity on Israel's part. It wasn't just oh I got sick of looking at her. It was she has been chasing after these other nations and that kind of thing. So um, the context there is is okay that was Israel Judah don't do that because I already sent them away. So infidelity is grounds for divorce. Desertion is grounds for divorce, legal divorce. We saw that last week. I didn't really dwell on it much last week because I thought it would fit better here. But verse 15 from chapter 7 said, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if you're married and you get one of you becomes a believer, and the other one is, I don't like Christianity. I don't like all this religious stuff. I don't want anything to do with you. Then you can divorce. They can divorce you, and, and the separation is okay. But they don't have to. If they're going, you know, I don't get it. I don't know. It makes you happy, whatever. You know, you go do your thing. If they're willing to stay, you can stay together. There's, there's some degree of freedom there. But, but that's another case where it could be uh, permissible for divorce. Now, this last one I'm talking myself out of bringing up because it gets me in trouble. Um, 
I wrote this in my ordination paper and had to defend it to the ordination council, and this is the one where they really were going after me. I think there's a case that can be made for abuse as a grounds for divorce. It's not clearly stated. It's not as clearly stated as desertion or infidelity or death. But that section I just read, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, our official position paper on marriage within our church does not include abuse for grounds for divorce. So this is not me speaking ex cathedra. I don't have a pointy hat on. I don't have Peter's chair behind me. This is a personal conviction, but I, I think there's grounds for it. That word, in such cases, it doesn't mean more of the same. Um, so the specific example here is a believer deserting uh, their spouse. That's the specific example. In cases such as this doesn't mean, and then they marry another unbeliever and they get divorced, and then they marry another unbeliever and they get divorced. That's the specific example. In such cases means something bigger. And we can get that from the context just in verse 15. In such cases, if a spouse fractures the marriage so much that to remain in it, the brother or sister would have to be enslaved and unable to find the peace that God calls them to, then that might fit in that one that is in such cases. Um, now, what pushback I got on the ordination council was, well, how much abuse? What kind of abuse? I was like, you'll know it when you see it. If the, if the marriage has gotten to the point where the abuser is so bad that for the abused person to remain in it, that would equal slavery. They have surrendered any ownership of themselves, any rights, anything like that. If, if the husband is not loving the wife as Christ loved the church, if he demands submission to the point where it is crushing, then perhaps that could be the abuse that would not lead to peace, that if it's irreconcilable. Now, again, this is not, um, my husband yelled at me, and so I want a divorce. We're, we're going to work through this. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of interaction. And can we make this better? Is there hope for, for restitution? So if you don't agree with me on that, I, I don't take it personal. I know it's a really controversial issue. And, and the traditional ones that we've always looked at is death, infidelity, and desertion. But I, I think there might be a case there. So I just wanted to bring that. I almost didn't. I have a big, I wrote in here, skip, question mark. I thought maybe it's best to not bring that up. But I, I think there's something going on there. So is there any other cases when marriage ends? Actually, there is. Not just death. This is the good part, by the way. This is the good news. It ends at the end of the age. When, when the resurrection happens, and Jesus said, for in the resurrection, remember when the, the scribes or the, the Sadducees came to him and they don't believe in a resurrection? And they say, look, there was a, a lady married a guy and didn't have any kids, and then he died, and the husband or the brother took over. And that happened seven times. They're so cavalier. Seven people just died. This woman is childless, and then she dies, and you're throwing it out like it's no big deal. You know, like, yeah, there you go. Be smart now. Jesus' response to them was, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So there is a point when marriage will come to an end. And it's a glorious end. It is a beautiful thing. It's not just now we go to heaven and I see Lisa and I don't know who she is. We have all of that history and everything, but, but something has changed. Something's different. What? What happened that made it different? Why does marriage come to an end in the future? Well, in another sense, it doesn't. It just becomes something bigger and bolder and beautiful. 
often in the parables, Jesus would talk about his return. He would, he would compare it to the wedding feast. And, and, and there's, there's virgins who are holding uh, the, the, um, the lamps and waiting for the bride to come. And you need to be like them because the bride's going to come and the wedding is going to take place. It's going to be glorious. The, the wedding feast of the lamb. We're, we're going to go out in the streets and we're going to drive everybody in so that they can join in this wedding feast of the lamb. And so when salvation comes to its fullness, the picture that's often used is marriage. The wedding, we've been waiting now, but then the wedding comes to fruition. It comes together. And so here's an example from Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So when the consummation comes, here comes this new Jerusalem walking in, and she looks like a bride, and you just, your heart swells going, have you been to weddings where the, the woman comes down the aisle and you just about faint because she looks so beautiful? Dressed in white, long flowing robe, hair done, makeup on. It just, it's just amazing. And I, I've done, I think, six weddings now. I've heard husbands gasp. That's what this is supposed to be like. Here comes the bride. And Jesus is standing and waiting as the bride comes to him. So the, the, the marriage ends because its fullness has come. Few verses later, then out of, then one of the seven angels who was, had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me, saying, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. She's prepared, she's beautiful, she's washed clean. He has made her holy and right, and so she comes in. And so, will you be married in heaven? Yes, but not who you think you will be. It will be the church will be married to her husband in heaven. And that's the glorious thing about marriage. That's why we have to work hard at it. Why it's difficult for us is because we're not quite saved yet. We have been redeemed. We have a new heart. We have a law written on our heart. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we still carry around this body of sin. And so we wrestle, and so we struggle. That's why Paul has to tell us how to make a marriage work. This is what it looks like. This is why Peter would say, live with your wives as a weaker vessel because she's a co-heir. This marriage is gonna terminate in the future when we're all married. So singles, good news, you're gonna get married someday. Maybe not on this earth, but that wedding is gonna be far better. It's gonna be far more glorious. It's gonna be a lot more fun when the wedding feast happens because sin will be gone. Death will be gone. Hell will be gone. All that will be washed away. So does, 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 does marriage have a, terminus, an end point. Does marriage come to an end? Yes, it does, and I can't wait. I don't ever want Lisa to go away. I, I tremble every once in a while when I think, what happens if she dies? I'm lost. <laughs> I don't have a clue. She's the better part of me. But there's a day when we won't be married. We'll be much more filled with, we'll be filled with much more joy because our salvation will be complete. That's the picture. That's why it comes to an end. That's why it started in creation and it comes to the finish. The commission was have dominion over the earth. Part of the dominion that we have over the earth now is the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, teach them, baptize them, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. When we've done that, when we've finished it, then the wedding comes and our marriage is done. The purpose of marriage will have been fulfilled. That, I think, is a bigger picture than just what we're going to get in 1 Corinthians 7, although 1 Corinthians 7 is really important to this. It's also why Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. I think he has all of this picture, all of this trajectory in mind. So let's agree with the author of Hebrews. Let's hold the marriage bed in high esteem. 
Marriage is, is a high calling. It is a beautiful thing. And we need each other to, to work together to help strengthen our marriages, to encourage each other in those things as we're heading towards that ultimate marriage with Christ. So that's how we can all be part of that. And so with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we are looking forward to that wedding lamb of the fe- uh, uh, wedding feast of the lamb. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, we would all have our, our, our lamps lit, our, our wicks trimmed, and plenty of oil waiting for your return when that marriage is, is complete, when it comes to its full meaning, when we understand marriage better then than we ever did while we were married. Um, Lord, would you come quickly, we pray. We pray that you would help us to complete that great commission, to, to complete that dominion over this earth, and to fill the earth as you've commanded. And Lord, as we fill, we pray that the gospel would go with that. And so Lord, would you please accomplish these things in and through us, and fill us with hope for that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.